being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong this is episode 48 imperial japan part 18 the pre-war japanese communist party part 2 the armed era and its immediate demise today i'm recording from moscow when we left off with the japanese communist party the yamakawa clique had just ran in elections a little too openly. It started weirding out the normies. I'm joking. It was police. You know, it was state repression. Everyone got arrested again. The entire Yamakawa clique sent to prison. Many of the JCP leaders in prison too. So the Comintern had to recruit new leaders from the only source they had. Japanese students studying in Moscow. There were approximately 40 Japanese youths studying in the Far Eastern Workers' Communist University in Moscow. Most of these were recruited to go back into Japan and restart the Japanese Communist Party. They left from Moscow to Vladivostok to Shanghai, then back to Japan. With almost no exceptions, each would be caught within a few months and given punitive, long prison sentences. Under these extremely oppressive conditions, the JCP was pushed into favoring illegalism, as any legal parties immediately drained all the resources, energy, money, support, and literally just years of its members' lives through these prison sentences. The Comintern, at this point, did not favor a legal party either. Around 1928, police intelligence estimated that the Yamakawa faction was about 30% of the total left movement. With the Comintern-aligned JCP making up the majority of the rest, around 70%. If you'll notice, there was not sizable factions of anarchists or non-Marxist socialists at this time. In 1928, 30 men from 24 different unions formed the Nihon Rodo Kumai Zenkoku Koyukikai, the National Council of Japanese Labor Unions, or Zenkyo for short. They were all JCP members. Most had also been Fukumoto disciples. Most had studied abroad in Moscow. These were the guys that kept getting caught by police and getting hit with short, but, you know, relatively long prison sentences, right? Like one or two years. It's that kind of in and out rotating, you know, charge that made continuity of leadership impossible. But... Zenkyo's organizations altogether had about, you know, 5,500 members when they started, and only half of those were even halfway active. So the JCP, through Zenkyo, was influencing just a faction of the overall Japanese, you know, workers. But Zenkyo was openly communist, and they made their beliefs known. They were able to survive a little bit longer than the Yamakawa clique by not printing handbills and running in elections, right? 
Zekio engaged in some pretty heavy direct action, actually. They carried out widespread sabotage during a Tokyo transport workers strike, for example. In 1929, however, police raided a JCP member and found a freaking org chart with names on it. So they scooped up and arrested the entire JCP roster yet again. Now, whichever dumbass or police provocateur wrote out an org chart with names on it, like, that's pretty funny, but, you know, it's at this juncture that the JCP entered its armed era. established itself in 1929, the founders started carrying handguns, which they obtained from foreign communist seamen. In this era, they started shooting back at cops. They also committed arson and threw bombs. As you might expect, this era did not last very long, and the police arrested all the Zenkyo leaders, basically everyone. There were points at which probably every Japanese communist might have been very well in police custody. In July 1930, literally everyone in JCP leadership was in prison, except for a single student who managed to get out and flee to Moscow to report what had happened. Now we have to remember that a lot of these JCP members were stuck in prison a long time. Many were subjected to Tenko, the Japanese version of brainwashing. Some 
absolutely had to undergo it while being supervised by sickos like Nisho Inoue, like we talked about in episode 40. Side note here, and this is just a theory on my part, but the cops getting an org chart with names on it and the JCP going violent could very well have happened because one of the members on the central committee at the time was Sagan Tanaka, who, again, we talked about in episode 40. He's the guy who went from being a member of the Japanese Communist Party, on the Central Committee, no less, to eventually running a far-right quasi-Yakuza outfit. It's interesting to know that Tanaka was actually a particularly violent member of the Communist Party. It does make me wonder if he was an agent provocateur, though he did serve out a pretty long prison sentence, so, you know, possibly he was just like a thuggish, unprincipled member of the Japanese Communist Party. It's hard to know. It's interesting to think about whether he was a police agent the entire time, or whether he just really took to Tenko. Either way, Tanaka became a militant, anti-communist, underworld boss. Now to switch gears here for just a moment. I don't think I've mentioned it before, but my wife and I like to play board games now and again. Mostly socially. I know, it's real nerd shit and it's very Mormon, but my wife mainly, this is mainly her hobby. (laughs) She has all kinds of opinions about Euro trash games. I don't even know, but either way, it's fun, you know, board games. What are you going to do? So, I got this card game a few months ago called Winterhorn by the game creator Jason Morningstar. It has a very interesting premise. In the world of the card game, Winterhorn is an activist group, and the players play as government agents, spooks, and feds, attempting to disrupt Winterhorn. What's really interesting is that the game has you get into the mindset of a bunch of police and intelligence agents trying to undermine a domestic threat, quote-unquote. And the game has you use real-world tactics in order to do so. I'll list out these tactics in loose order of aggression. Recruiting members of Winterhorn, like recruiting them as double agents, right? Intercepting, like as in electronic interception of Winterhorn's communications. Surveilling Winterhorn members. Forming front groups that compete with Winterhorn. Infiltrating Winterhorn, like physically. Like their office, right? Spreading disinformation about Winterhorn. Manipulating Winterhorn's associates, like going to their work, talking to their boss, their family. Violence, roughing up members of Winterhorn, right up to and including murder. Intimidation, as in planting evidence during arrests, things of this nature. Black bag jobs, you know, surreptitiously entering. Bad jacketing, fed jacketing, snitch jacketing, and vandalism. Now, the game plays out quite interestingly, with different members of Winterhorn reacting differently. It's got almost like a choose-your-own-adventure 
sort of approach with a bunch of different endings depending on the choices you make during the game, which tactics you use. I would argue that the replay value goes down significantly after just one playthrough, but it's still worth it to play with like new groups of people, and at under $20 it's well worth the cost of admission. This has been Jimmy's Board Game Corner. Please like and subscribe. I'm joking. <laughs> I know this sounds like an ad, but <laughs> I've not been paid to talk about this game. They don't know I exist. But I would argue this game really does provide an interesting way to think about police repression. There is a whole range of tactics that police, feds, and spies can use against different groups. This game makes you think about all of them, or like, you know, most of them. And from my reading, it appears that members of the Japanese Communist Party at this time were subjected to all of these tactics and more. It really makes you think about your convictions. It doesn't even have to be about communism here. Like, what do you care about deeply enough to get fired over? What is the likelihood that your organization has infiltrators? They say that during the Vietnam War, there was an undercover army agent at every anti-war event over 20 people for like the entirety of the conflict. Do you think these tactics ever stopped? If you do, what evidence do you have for that? When we judge the Japanese Communist Party, we should keep in mind the extreme level of repression they faced. Communists, like anyone, tend to celebrate victories and to harshly judge losers. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you have the right line if you lost, right? But I will say that I have so much respect for this generation of Japanese communists just getting thrown into the bozaw. Speaking of bozaws, unfortunately, it was increasingly dark times in the Soviet Union too. Bukharin had been expelled and was in the process of being purged. This required a strategic change from the Bukharin Theses of 1927. And so, the 1931 Theses came out. And I'm, I'm joking, right? Like, it's a dark joke. But the 1931 Theses ironically came pretty close to the Yamakawa click position. They strongly suggested the possibility of a one-stage revolution in Japan. They argued that Japan still had only minor feudal elements. They argued that a worker-peasant alliance would, you know, be successful and that a, they should try to do a united front against imperialism. The thing is, <laughs> the common turn which was still undergoing changes, did not like the 1931 theses, so they issued the 1932 theses. The 1932 theses critiqued the 1931 theses, emphasizing how much of a problem the emperor system still was. The 1932 theses emphasized the need to stop Japanese imperialism over everything else. 
Now what's interesting is that the JCP would adopt the 1931 theses as their basic document going into the post, post-war period and retained mo- like most of it. They would never seriously address the 1932 critiques. Now, the, ni- the early 1930s were a wild time to be Japanese in the first place. You gotta remember, there was the Manchurian incident, the establishment of Manchukuo, the full-scale invasion of China, all of these things happening in quick succession. Like, this is a crazy time. There was a lot of social upheaval. Seeing Japanese imperialism aggressively attacking multiple foreign countries underscored to the Japanese left that Japan was the problem. And this helped everyone fall in line with the common terms prescriptions. Like, nobody wants to be a revolutionary defeatist, but after a certain point, like, it's hard to say Japan is not the main issue here, right? The historian Scalapino wrote, The subsequent intense pressure on the leftist opposition at home by the police and the government the proliferation of radical and conservative right-wing organizations and the changing economic and political structures at home dictated by the demands of Japan's intervention in China made it obvious to the JCP that the futures of China and Japan had become intertwined." By 1933, nationalism was sweeping across Japan and national socialism was appearing more and more in many different forms. There was also simply no Japanese Communist Party left. Everyone was either in prison, exiled, or unwilling to engage in politics. Even worse, in 1933, two leading Japanese communists, Manabu Sano and Sadachika Nabayama, denounced communism publicly from their prison cells. These recantations focused on how the international communist movement was just a vehicle for Russian national interests, and the JCP was never allowed to exercise independent judgment or freedom of action. Notice, the police had these guys focus on true, legitimate critiques of the Japanese Communist Party in order to ring more true. Sano and Sabayama said they were still committed to socialism. National socialism. Japanese socialism. Their recantations were widely publicized and a number of communists followed their lead. By 1935, the very last Japanese Communist Party member was arrested and JCP activities ceased entirely on an organized basis. The socialist labor movement was effectively entirely snuffed out, at least publicly, and would not resurge until 1946. Remember, this was why so many leftists were willing to try to work in Manchukuo, doing quasi-socialist projects while being rehabilitated and literally brainwashed. These were very dark times in Japan. Here's an interesting thought that the book The Japanese Communist Movement 1920-1966 points out. 
Being a communist in Japan in the 1930s was different than being a communist in the early 1920s. The motives for joining and the goals of the struggle were distinct. While the early JCP fought to expand the political and social rights of the Japanese people, Japanese communists of the 1930s set their sights on curbing Japanese imperialism abroad. Since 1928, the majority of the left found in the Chinese Revolution and the defense of the Soviet state the only way in which the Japanese proletarian revolution could ever be achieved. The JCP itself became committed to the Comintern more than ever, as it came to believe that only the Comintern and the Russian revolutionary model could provide a framework for international cooperation and struggle. Unquote. It's interesting to think about why people join these movements, and how it really can be completely different types of people joining for entirely different reasons. It's also interesting to see that through history, you know, happening, through Japanese imperialism growing, all that stuff about Yamakawa not wanting to oppose Japanese imperialism looked more and more incorrect, I guess you could say. It's interesting, like, how these positions develop and change. Now, the same book that I just quoted lists out four reasons why the Japanese Communist Party failed. And I will go through them, and mind you, I'm paraphrasing, not directly quoting here, and I will be adding my own thoughts, though I will make it clear when it's my thoughts, right? First, the JCP had a profound and continuous weakness that produced an unending series of frustrations and defeats. The JCP started too late, possibly, and their inability to leverage nationalism in any sense was a liability. They were almost too internationalist, and the Japanese state was extremely efficient in dealing with them. The book is charitable in calling the JCP's thousand or so members extremely brave. I agree. The book also has this passage, which I found extremely funny. Quote, Many of these individuals are, in reality, substituting political action, often of the most daring type, for needed psychotherapy. Unquote. See, that's how you know this is real UC Berkeley shit. That's the... Who published this book? <laughs> you know, fellas, <laughs> will you literally carry out a revolution rather than get therapy? <laughs> I mean, whomst among us? <laughs> Second, that the JCP was trending towards extremism partially due to circumstances but partially due to the Comintern's directives, relatedly, the JCP was not able to attract first-string intellectuals. My words here, the repression was so harsh that no Tito types were ever able to develop, and while I can't necessarily judge if the JCP failed to attract the most, I guess, first-string intellectuals, you know, I'll have to take their word for it, I guess. 
Third, the adoption by the JCP, despite its total alienation from Japanese society, of certain structural characteristics of other Japanese social organizations, including the proclivities for factionalism. The book argues that in many ways the JCP was not centralized enough, actually. Which is very interesting, though I would argue that that did not exactly occur by choice, right? It was sort of forced onto them due to state repression. Fourth, continuous and extensive Soviet control over party leadership and basic policy, at least after 1924. Like we've discussed, this guidance did not clearly help in most cases and frequently undermined the JCP, arguably damaging it in the long run. I quote from Tatiana Linkoeva here, who I think summarizes it best. She said, Did leftist internationalism in interwar Japan have a chance to succeed? Most probably not. The reason for this is not that the state was too powerful, nor that police repression was too thorough, but that leftist thinking from the start included a fatal flaw that would prove to be its undoing, namely the belief that Japan was exceptional and or superior to the rest of Asia and even to revolutionary Russia. Japanese leftists might not have been able to stop the war in China, but they might have altered the course of those tragic events had their response to the Russian Revolution's supranational vision been different. Unquote. What are we to make of all this? Did the Japanese Communist Party ever have a chance? There were some genuinely revolutionary moments, like the Rice Riots, but no, it appears that the JCP started too late to capitalize on them. State persecution was too fierce to allow the growth of either a radical or even a moderate left in Japan. We saw how the Comintern could provide invaluable knowledge, assistance, and funds to different countries, revolutionary parties. They certainly provided that to the JCP, but they also meddled causing many, many setbacks. The common turn was similarly different degrees of helpful and unhelpful in other countries too, right? I can't speak on it at great length, but I read like a third of a biography on Tito and Yugoslavia, and it was a similar mixed bag there, though of course conditions were more favorable in the Balkans. We saw how the JCP had their own aborted, abbreviated version of the Menshevik-Bolshevik split with the factions between Yamakawa and Fukumoto, though again the Comintern stepped in and got in their way. There is also an entirely supportable position that both of them were in error, if you take a doctrinaire Soviet Marxist-Leninist position, I suppose. Then. In my limited way, I tried to convey what it must have been like to be such a persecuted member of the JCP. It's almost incomprehensible to wrap your head around all of the many ways the state could and did fuck these people's lives up, and the sacrifices they made to fight against the tide. 
I hesitate to spend too much time personally opining on the tactical and strategic errors of the JCP. Like, I don't mind quoting academics who do, but I would feel bad doing it myself. I don't mean to be an armchair revolutionary. Whatever mistakes the JCP made, conditions were clearly not ripe for revolution in pre-war Japan. It's a testament to their courage that there was such a dedicated cadre fighting. We will pick up on the story of the Japanese Communist Party in future episodes. Four sources today. First and foremost, I used Revolution Goes East, Imperial Japan and Soviet Communism by Tatiana Linkoeva. I also used the book The Japanese Communist Party, 1920-1966 by Robert Scalapino. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. Check out my Patreon, where for $5 a month you can get double the content, sometimes even more. Now I need to be on my way to the Research Institute for Japanese Socialism in Tokyo. See you next week, and God bless.